recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 2nd, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Wow, I have a lot of things to say. I'd love to say now, but they're going to wait until tomorrow night when I talk about the non-Adamic races in biblical eschatology. I'm going to take a long diversion before I present that tomorrow and discuss at length a forum post and some of the, um, some of the, wow, some of the universalist false teachings and how so many scriptures are totally perverted um, by, by a lot of people, even people who used to listen to my programs, but who can't handle the truth of the racial message of the gospel and, and, and would pervert the word of God to encourage, or, or, or really not even to encourage, but that they're doing it so that they can cover for certain of their own family members who simply aren't white whether it be nephews, nieces, grandchildren, children, spouses. And, 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 well, what they don't realize is that they're encouraging race mixing. They're encouraging further race mixing. They're going along with the Jewish plan to destroy our race, which is so evident in our society today. And they're embracing that, and they're trying to drag it into, into Christian identity and that's where it certainly does not belong. They're removing identity from Christian identity. What they don't realize is that the penalty for adultery and fornication under the law of God is death. The penalty is death. Not only for those who do such things, but also for those who approve of those doing such things as Paul of Tarsus puts it in Romans chapter 1. It's sad that anybody that calls himself an identity Christian has accepted these lies, that these um, craftily conceived lies. And, and we've already countered many of them here over the past three years, and, and we'll encounter more of them tomorrow. Tonight, I... I, I um, promised a good friend, I would say, a couple of words on the Sabbath. The Hebrew Sabbath, the original Israelite Sabbath, it wasn't on a Saturday, and it wasn't on a Sunday. If you think that the Jews had the calendar right just because they're Jews, you've really got to be kidding yourself. Don't give the Jews credit for anything, because in truth, they're not Jews at all. They're devils. An examination of the instructions in the book of Exodus, which were given to Israel concerning the Passover and the Sabbath, reveals that the first day of the year was marked with the observance of the spring or vernal equinox. And, so far as we can perceive, it begins in the evening of the day, which we can call March 20th on our modern calendars. That was the first day of the Israelite year, roughly. It started the Sabbath cycle for the year, and the Passover was on the Sabbath on the 14th day of the year, 
a child should be able to read the Exodus account and at least figure this out. I, I mean, I know that the information in the Old Testament, it's not perfect in this regard. But it is complete enough that we should be able to figure this part out without a problem. The reckoning of the Sabbath at the time of Christ had already diverged from the Old Testament scriptures. And we see a, a, um, a Passover day that the apostles really thought was the Passover day. There's no indication they didn't, but which was celebrated a couple of days before the Passover, but which was held in Jerusalem which those people really believed was the Passover. So we see a divergence, right, in the New Testament in, in the calendar. But if you insist on celebrating a Saturday Sabbath in, in, in a, um, and, and, and insisting that your brethren celebrate a Saturday Sabbath, you'll be right about one-seventh of the time. And if you insist on celebrating a Sunday Sabbath, you'll be right about one-seventh of the time. And if you insist on celebrating a biblical Sabbath, you must really begin counting the seventh day anew each year from the day of the vernal equinox, as Yahweh instructed to Israel to do in the Exodus. This particular year, the Sabbath would begin each Thursday evening and end each Friday evening. We'll call that Friday, but next March, it begins Saturday evening, or, or I'm sorry, Friday evening, and, and then Saturday evening. In 2016, because of the leap year, it jumps to Monday. It begins Sunday evening in 2016, after the spring equinox of 2016, and ends Monday evening. We'll call that Monday. It's Saturday again in 2020. And in 2021, it's Sunday, so the Catholics can stay mad until 2021. Now, most of us would think, wow, I can't celebrate a Sabbath on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. I need my job. I need my job. I need to comply with my schedule. I need to comply with my wife's job, her schedule, whatever. That, that's, just, that, that's the predicament we're in in the modern world, right? Well, we're not... But we're not living in that Israelite Old Testament nation, right? That's because ever since the days of the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations, we are still Israel in captivity, in the eyes of God, anyway. And, and, and if you listen to our earlier presentations on the, on the epistle to the Romans, you'll see that Yahweh announced to the children of Israel that he would no longer be pleased with their feast days and their Sabbaths. For that same reason, we who return to Yahweh in Christ, the Apostle Paul told us, let no man judge you in meat or drink, or in respect of a holy day, or, or, or of the new moon, or the new month, if you want to interpret it that way, or of the Sabbath days. Don't let anybody judge you concerning the Sabbath days. Whatever Sabbath day you choose to celebrate, or whatever day you choose to designate a Sabbath, 
is fine. I've long told people, if I'm at your house and you celebrate a Saturday Sabbath, I'm in your home. I'm going to celebrate right along with you. And if you choose to celebrate a Sunday Sabbath, I'm not going to beat you up over it. You're my brother. Brotherly love comes first to a Christian. I'm going to celebrate that Sunday Sabbath because I'm in your home. In in my home, we have a Colossians chapter 2 attitude. Let no man judge you concerning new moons, feast days, and Sabbaths. Some men, as Paul says, and I think we'll get to this in Romans chapter 10, some men celebrate a day, meaning a particular day. Some men celebrate every day. Every day we celebrate Christ. Every day we praise him and thank him for our very existence. With this, we will present Romans chapter 4, part 5 of this installment, of of this presentation, I should say, of the epistles of Paul. From Romans chapter 1, where he cited the words of Habakkuk, that the just shall live by faith, through Romans chapter 3, Paul had argued that justification before God was not by the rituals or the works of the law. Discussing those arguments, we cited many of the statements, we cited many of the statements of Yahweh God by the prophets, which certainly do support Paul's position. Here in Romans chapter 4, Paul offers Abraham himself as an example in order to further illustrate his argument that justification is not by works or rituals, the rituals designated by the law. However, there is more to consider in the fabric of Paul's discourse than justification alone, because he's saying a lot more as he talks about justification. Firstly, in Romans chapters 2 and 3, Paul also drew a distinction between the laws of Moses and the laws which were prophesied to have been written on the hearts of the children of Israel. As Yahweh had promised in the prophets, in the words of both Jeremiah and Isaiah, it's also alluded to several times in Deuteronomy. These laws, as it it is related in Jeremiah, bear a direct relation to the New Covenant. And we saw that Paul explained as much in his epistle to the Hebrews as well. So he had basically the same message for the Hebrews that he had for the Romans. He only tailored the message to the Hebrews for those who were within the law and the circumcision, while he tailored the message to the Romans for those who were outside of the law, for dispersed Israel. But it was the same message. From this discussion, it was hopefully elucidated that the basic Ten Commandments, as well as the other moral laws of God, 
transcend the law of Moses, which were imposed as a condition of the marriage relationship between Yahweh and Israel. And that while the Levitical laws and the associated priesthood are no longer in force, the Christians nevertheless have an obligation to uphold the basic commandments and the other moral laws of God. Secondly, there is another facet of Paul's arguments, and that is that all of these things which are addressed are addressed only to the children of Israel as the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture which concerns Israel exclusively. And that neither Paul nor the scripture itself uphold the errant notions of modern universalism. It is demonstrable from statements which he made throughout this epistle that Paul believed the Romans to have descended from ancient Israel. Paul shall further discuss the relationship of Israel and sin to the law as he proceeds throughout the subsequent chapters of Romans. Here, however, in this chapter, Paul explains how the faith of Abraham is greater than the works of the law and how justification before God is of the faith of Abraham. Doing this, and this is of the utmost importance, Paul also defines the faith of Abraham. He tells us what it is. And therefore, there should be no confusion concerning the true scope of the gospel message. This is going to be slow going through Romans chapter 4 because I don't think there's too many places where I read more than one verse at a time without having probably excessive comments. Now what may we say that our forefather Abraham has found concerning the flesh? Here is the first place in this epistle to the Romans where there is a variation among the Greek man, amongst the Greek manuscripts which is truly significant. The majority text and the Codex Claromontanus, they both have only our father, Abraham. The text of the Christogenian New Testament has forefather, and that's because the word forefather appears in the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and Ephraimi Siri. They all have the word forefather. It is telling that the, that the majority text disagrees with the Codex Alexandrinus here. The Codex Alexandrinus has forefather. The majority text has only father. The Codex Alexandrinus, out of all the ancient codices, is the one from which the majority text has descended, and the one with which it most often agrees. <clears throat> That's why the, um, even though the original higher critics and, and biblical exegesists, that is why they 
labeled, and I'm speaking of Westcott and Hort primarily, they labeled the um, Codex Alexandrinus as the Alexandrian tradition. And the Codex Ephraimiseri was a part of that, and it's closely related to it. They're very similar manuscripts. But today, academics label that the Byzantine text type, the Codex Alexandrinus and the Codex Ephraimiseri. They've changed the designation because it's recognized that the um, the, 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 the minuscule documents and, and the later um, manuscripts which became known as the majority text, that those manuscripts are very closely related and descended from the Codex Alexandrinus. But here they differ, and, and, and the majority text does not have that word forefather, but the Codex Alexandrinus does. Other modern translations, such as the ASV, for instance, also had the word forefather here, following the better manuscripts in this regard. I'm going to give an example, though, and, and I did check this verse. I don't always, when I, when I prepared my translation, honestly, I didn't check any other Bible. I didn't even have any other Bible, except for King James Version. That, that's, that's a totally honest statement. I was in prison. It was hard to get other Bibles. I couldn't just look up a passage on the Internet and, and go to one of these websites that had every single translation, modern translation known to man for each passage. I didn't have that luxury when I did the Christogenian New Testament. Sometimes preparing for these programs, I will go check and see how these other popular translations present a passage so, so that I could comment on it in, in this program. So here I am, right? The, the, um, wow, this is evil. As an example of how much evil can be perpetrated through any so-called translation of Scripture, I'm going to read Romans 4.1 from the New Living Translation. And it says, Abraham was, humanly speaking. That's how they translated that phrase, according to the flesh. But they actually, they actually um, moved it out of its natural grammatical position to a different part of speech. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? That, that's not a new living translation. That's a dead translation. That, that should, somebody should stick a knife in that book and throw it in the bottom of the pits of hell. Rarely can so much treachery be manifested in the translation of a single passage. The words founder of our Jewish nation and being made right with God, they're all pure fabrications. That's the New Living Translation of the Bible. Sometimes it does some passages pretty good, and I'm surprised, but where it concerns, um, where it concerns the identity of the Jews and, and, and the so-called Gentiles and, and passages such as that, 
It's a complete perverted corruption of the truth, without doubt. Here in this passage, Paul is telling the Romans that they have Abraham for a forefather. By his use of the term forefather here, Paul is is asserting that Abraham is the progenitor of both the Judeans and the Romans. Paul himself explicitly ensures the accuracy of our interpretation of this passage in verse 16 of this chapter where he says that Abraham is the father of us all. And he's meaning himself and the Romans that he's writing to. This is in keeping with all the other evidence presented by this epistle which demonstrates that the Romans were indeed descendants of the ancient children of Israel. Since they, for instance, where he says in Romans chapter 125, since they changed the truth of God into a lie. Now it may be possible, even though it's not right, to spiritualize the word father, and Paul does that in one place himself even, to insist that it is only a metaphorical title, it is much more difficult to insist upon such an interpretation of the word forefather. The word forefather is genetic. It can't be anything else. Throughout this chapter, the discourse demonstrates that the Romans were indeed of the ancient Israelites. Abraham, our forefather, forefather to both Paul and to the Romans, to whom he's writing. Verse 2, For if Abraham, from the rituals or the works of the law, had been deemed worthy, he has reason to boast, but not towards Yahweh. You know, perhaps the Greek word pros or towards here may have been in reply to or even in respect of If Abraham had been deemed worthy from rituals, what we must ask is, could he have been the author of his own salvation? In Luke chapter 1, we see in part, and and if he could have been, he would have had reason to boast, right? But he couldn't be. In Luke chapter 1, we see in part the reason for Israel's need for salvation. From verse 68. This is the Christogenia, New Testament. Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people and has raised the horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from old. Preservation from our enemies and from the hands of all those who hate us to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, which is given to us, being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. These are the words of the father of John the Baptist. His name was Zacharias. I'm certain that he was considering that those Jew-Edomite bastards in Jerusalem when he was talking about being in the hands of his enemies. Verse 
being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. And now you, child, shall be called a prophet of the highest, for you shall go on before the face of Yahweh to prepare his path, for which to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the dismissal of their errors. Through the affectionate mercies of our God, by whom dawn visits us from the heights, to shine upon those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Zacharias, those people in his time needed deliverance from those Edomite bastards in Jerusalem. Today we need deliverance from the Edomite bastards in New York and Washington. We're in the same position, once again, on a much larger scale. These words in Luke chapter 1 are consistent with the design of God from the beginning. Here it is, the same message in part from Deuteronomy chapter 33, from verse 26. There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun. That's an epithet for Israel, which means upright one. Who rides upon the heaven in thy hell, and in his excellency on the sky. The eternal God is thy refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be, called, shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heavens shall drop down dew. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by Yahweh, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency? And thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee. Well, we know that now. And thou shalt tread upon their high places. In both Old and New Testaments, the children of Israel require salvation from their enemies. The message does not change. And we see it explained in both places that God himself will be their savior. This aspect of biblical salvation in the New Testament is virtually ignored by denominational Christianity. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7.19 that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Rituals cannot save anyone from their enemies. Judeo-Christians want to save the enemies from our enemies. However, the rituals of the law set Israel apart from the other nations and races. And they were a sign that Israel was keeping the commandments of God. That's what we don't see in, in these rituals. That's all they were. They were a sign that, that, that Israel was keeping the commandments of Yahweh and willing to make atonement when they sinned. By keeping Yahweh's law, Israel pleases Yahweh their God, and he will save them from their enemies. So keeping the law and performing the rituals, that doesn't save us. We're missing a couple of steps there. That pleases 
our God to favor us when we keep his law, and he saves us. Today, people think they could save themselves through these new rituals that these Judeo-Christian churches practice, And they can't save themselves because they don't please God with those rituals whereby they think they save themselves. Verse 3. Indeed, what did the writing say? That Abraham trusted Yahweh and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Here Paul quotes Genesis 15.6. And to understand what Paul means by quoting this, the original and complete passage must be examined. In that chapter of Genesis, an aging and childless Abraham has no heir. And therefore, Abraham attempts to appoint a replacement from among the servants of his household. However, Yahweh God rejects Abraham's replacement, and he rejects the idea that Abraham's heir should come from anywhere other than Abraham's loins. From Genesis chapter 15, from verse 1. After these things, the word of Yahweh came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram, I'm sorry, he's Abram here. He's not Abraham yet. And Abram said, Yahweh God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, The word of Yahweh came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, meaning Abraham, believed in Yahweh, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And that's what Paul quotes here, that Abraham trusted Yahweh, or believed Yahweh, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Ostensibly, Eleazar of Damascus was a Syrian, which is an Aramean, a descendant of Aram, the son of Shem, and the great uncle of Eber, from whom came the Hebrews. Eleazar was, therefore, of the same race as Abraham, distant cousin. However, right from the beginning, in Genesis chapter 12, Yahweh promised Abraham, where he told him, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Then Yahweh promised Abraham further in Genesis chapter 13, in verse 14. And Yahweh said unto Abraham, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, 
northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk to the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Of course, that particular land wouldn't be able to contain seed which multiplied as the dust of the earth. Therefore, this idea which Abraham had developed in Genesis chapter 15, that because he was still childless, that he could somehow replace his seed with that of another man, even a man from his own race, that idea was rejected by God. When Yahweh informed Abraham that his replacement theology was a bad idea, and once again told him that he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir, and to look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them, so shall thy seed be. Then Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. Yahweh would not allow replacement theology then, and he sure as hell won't allow it today, since Yahweh does not change. The prophet Malachi was a second, second temple prophet. He was writing at least 200 years after the Assyrian deportations of Israel and most of Judah. From Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6, For I am Yahweh, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. The promises would not change because Israel was put out of the land. That's what Malachi is saying. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, meaning in Christ. Malachi chapters 3 and 4 are a messianic prophecy. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith Yahweh of hosts. The message of the gospel is the path by which Israel returns to Yahweh their God. However, the seed of Israel are not to be replaced. That is folly. It is the divisive man of little understanding. We should believe the word of God first. And maybe then we too may share in the righteousness which Abraham believed. And acquired from God. Abraham was considered righteous by God because he believed God. In this respect, we should believe God too. In this respect, and share in that righteousness, if indeed we are Abraham's seed. Verse 4. Now to he who performs rituals, 
his reward is not considered in accordance with favor, but in accordance with debt. That verb there, or gazomahi, is usually to work, not to he who works, or to he who does works, among other definitions. Here it's interpreted from the context as to perform rituals, because that's what Paul was referring to, so that the translation is consistent with Paul's use of the phrase, works of the law, to describe those rituals. So it's a translator's liberality. When the children of Israel were under the Levitical law, they were, they were obligated to make certain tithes and other sacrificial offerings at diverse times of the year. And then they were obligated to make additional sacrifices in order to signify atonement for their sins. In reality, this was a system of fines and punishments for transgression. However, there is indeed a deeper spiritual significance to the blood offerings because the blood of the animal was offered in place of the life of the transgressor, and that was acceptable to God. From Leviticus chapter 5, from verse 5, and it shall be when he shall be guilty in one of these things that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing, and he shall bring his trespass offering unto Yahweh for his sin which he sinned, a female from the flock, a lamb, or a kid of the goats, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his sin. However, as Paul says in Hebrews chapter 9, almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. And Paul says, Almost all things, but not quite everything, could be propitiated with a blood sacrifice on behalf of the sinner. Under the law, there were some sins for which there was no atonement, and the life of the sinner himself was required. One of these sins was adultery. There is no possible recompense for adultery, and therefore, adulterers would be put to death. From Leviticus chapter 20, and a man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The nation of Israel was the bride, the wife of Yahweh their God. From Jeremiah 3.14, Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh, for I am married unto you. And from Hosea chapter 2, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. The prophecy of Hosea is an account of Yahweh putting Israel away in divorce, while providing a promise that Israel would indeed be betrothed, be betrothed to Yahweh once again. How this could be is a mystery which Paul explains in Romans chapter 7 because the law of God precludes a husband from taking back a wife who is married to others. 
Deuteronomy chapter 24. When the children of Israel engaged in paganism, they married themselves to strange gods. Therefore, they were under the penalty of adultery. They were all liable to death under the laws of God, which they, him, they themselves had agreed to abide by. Yahweh laments Israel in Jeremiah chapter 9, from verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness, in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. The change had already been pronounced in Hosea. I'm sorry, the charge had already been pronounced in Hosea chapter 7. Hosea writing about, well, at least 120 years before Jeremiah. And they considered, not in their hearts, that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, as an oven heated by the baker, who ceaseth from raising after he has kneaded the dough until it be wet, leavened. Because all of the children of Israel were adulterers in the eyes of God, <clears throat> in the eyes of God they were all dead, because the penalty for adultery is death. And that, too, is pronounced. It's expounded upon in Hosea chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke trembling, or actually when Ephraim was humble, because true humility is obedience to God. That's what the Christian definition, definition of humility is, obedience to God. When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in vow, he died. And now they sin more and more. Ephraim wasn't physically dead. Ephraim being an epithet in Hosea for the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, right? Ephraim wasn't physically dead. He was metaphorically dead in the eyes of God. That's how they could sin more and more, even after he died, right? But when he offended in vow, he died. And now they sin more and more, and have made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding. All of it, the work of craftsmen, they say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they shall be as the morning cloud, and as the early dew that passes away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke of the chimney. Ephraim, meaning the northern kingdom, was dead in sin. And now you can understand what Paul means by 
dying to sin. We die to sin because when we transgress, we understand that the law requires our life. We have no other propitiation. We are only alive in Christ because he is our propitiation. We'll see more of we'll see more of that in Romans chapter seven. Ephraim, meaning the northern kingdom, was dead in sin. However, in that same chapter of Hosea, there is a message of hope because Yahweh had promised to save his people, even though to him, in his in his eyes, because they were bound to the law, they were dead. And from verse 4 he says, Yet I am Yahweh, thy God from the land of Egypt. And thou shalt know no God but me. This is right after a reference to their idolatry, right? For there is no Savior beside me. Even though Israel was dead in sin, the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, Yahweh would keep them, and he would engineer a way. He already had engineered a way, as Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. He already had engineered a way to keep Israel and to keep his law. That's a digression. We see that the people of Israel would be saved in spite of their adultery, right there in Hosea 13.4. Hosea continues, 13.5, I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of the great drought. According to their pasture, so they were filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they have forgotten me. Therefore, I will be unto them as a lion, as a leopard by the way will I observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps, and will rend the call of their heart. And there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. But in me, is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges, of whom thou sayest, give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in mine anger, and took him away in my wrath. This is a reference to the demands which the people had made for an earthly king as it is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 8. This was the beginning of the apostasy of Israel as a nation. Hosea continues, The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son. For he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. 
I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death, that natural death that they had put themselves under the common condemnation of when they sinned the sin of adultery against God. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. So in spite of Israel's sin, in spite of the fact that they were dead so far as Yahweh their God was concerned, they would nevertheless be redeemed by Yahweh their God through Christ. Therefore, in the very prophecy that introduces the new covenant, in Jeremiah chapter 31, we read, at the same time, saith Yahweh, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword, those people who survived the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, found grace in the wilderness. The woman that fled to the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, Yahweh hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yeah, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built. O virgin of Israel, the virgin that Paul betroths to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. O virgin of Israel, thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. There is no ritual which can repay Yahweh God for the sins which Israel had committed. The children of Israel would therefore not be saved on account of themselves through rituals. Rather, they would be saved in spite of themselves through the grace of God. How Yahweh chose to do this without violating his own law is explained by Paul in Romans chapter 7. So Israel cannot be justified by rituals. Verse 5, Romans chapter 4. But to he not performing, but who rather is trusting on he who must judge the impious, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, now that phrase, he who must judge, it may have been rendered, rendered as the King James had it, he who is justifying. It's simply a, a, a matter of which part of the definition of the word you want to use. The, the, um, I have judged because the verb, dikahio, is primarily to set right, but the way it's used in secular Greek, it can be set right to, to, um, to do a man right or justice by condemning 
or by justifying. It could go either way. So the King James Version, the way it's, it, it's translated, is, is correct from the context because the promise is to justify all of Israel. As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, quoting Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Therefore, the children of Israel would find their justification in the same manner that Abraham was justified. Verse 6, Romans chapter 4. Just as David also declares the blessing of the man to whom Yahweh accounts righteousness apart from rituals. Blessed are they who are released from lawlessness and whose errors or sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh will not account guilt or sin. The text of verses 7 and 8 of Romans 4 are practically verbatim from the Septuagint Greek of Psalm 32. And I'm going to read that from Brenton's English. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. This is a Christian paradox that we sin, but that we will not sin, and that we will not sin however all men sin indeed. This is the very crux of the paradox which Paul addresses in these chapters of Romans. Since those who clung to the rituals of the law and the propitiation of sin to the rituals scoffed at the idea of grace and forgiveness of sin in the mercy of God upon Israel apart from the rituals. This is This is also why Paul asked the rhetorical question in Romans chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, And shall we not bring about evil things in order that good things may come? Because the scoffers were saying, Well, go and sin some more so that there'll be even more grace. Well, that's not the answer. The answer, of course, is negative. And again, in Romans 3.31, Paul said, do we then nullify the law by faith? And the answer was, certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. Men cannot help but sin. This is that war between the nature of the spirit and the nature of the flesh, which Paul discusses several times in his epistles, and later here in his epistle to the Romans, because such a struggle occurs in every Adamic man who seeks to do good, who seeks to follow the spirit rather than the flesh. In Romans chapter 7, in a part of one such discussion, Paul says, so indeed the law 
is sacred, and the commandment sacred and just and good. Then, that which is good, to me, has it become death? Certainly not, but sin, that it may bring sin to light. Through the good in me accomplishes death, so that the sin becomes excessively wicked by the commandment. Indeed, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, being ruined by sin. For that which I perpetrate, I do not recognize. In other words, we should not accept our own lust. We should not accept our own evil thoughts. I do not practice that which I wish. Rather, I do that which I hate. But if I do that which I do not wish, I concede to the law that it is virtuous. And, and I've used the word sin here for illustrative purposes in, in this quotation from Romans 7. Elsewhere, I'm usually biased against the word. My bias might be unjust. It, it's a product of my um, Catholic upbringing, where at an, at an early time, I, I perceived that the word sin was abused by the Catholic Church. So I become soured on the word. And, and I'll explain that at length somewhere in these presentations. The paradox is resolved that we all sin, but we won't sin. That we all sin, but we don't sin. But we sin. We can't help but sin. The paradox is resolved and an understanding that all Israel shall indeed be saved as the word of God promises is fully ascertained in an understanding of Psalm 32, verse 2 especially, which Paul just quoted in the first epistle of John. First, in Psalm 32, 2, In the part of verse 2, which Paul stops short of quoting here, he didn't complete the verse. There is our first clue where it says, Blessed is the man unto whom Yahweh imputes not iniquity. And Paul quoted that part, but he stopped there. And it goes on to say, And in whose spirit there is no guile. This may bring to mind the occasion where Yahshua Christ is said to have first laid eyes on the apostle Nathaniel, as it is recorded in John chapter 1, from verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. In 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle assures us that, from verse 9, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, the same Apostle told us earlier in that same epistle that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. So John isn't merely telling us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, that we do not sin. Or he would be found to contradict himself. Rather, 
this must be his way of explaining that if one's seed remaineth in him, that sin will not be imputed to him. As David had said in the 32nd Psalm, sin will not be imputed to him because he is born of God, being of the race of Adam and not of the world, as he explains in chapter 4 of that same epistle. Sin will not be imputed to him, because in spite of his condition in the world, there is no guile in his spirit. Since Adam was born of God, and only Adam was born of God, the bastards and the other so-called races who are not of Adam must be those born of the world. The truth of the assertion that the entire Adamic race has such an ultimate salvation in Christ is revealed by Paul himself since it is a topic of Romans chapter 5. And we'll have to hold on to the rest of it for that presentation next week, Yahweh willing. Verse 9, Romans 4. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? Indeed, we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted, being in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And the Christianian New Testament has an error there. I don't know how it was introduced or how it came to be, because all the manuscripts clearly have Abraham, and I only have the pronoun, him, there, and, and that will be corrected. Abraham's righteousness was accounted to him before he was circumcised, and therefore righteousness is accounted apart from any ritual of the law. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 7, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God. Of course, Christ being appointed from the foundation of the world, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, this better hope had always existed. It is first expressed... In Genesis 3.22, and we'll discuss that at greater length in our forthcoming Romans chapter 5 presentation. Verse 11. The promise, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to read it first. Huh? And he received a sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith he had in uncircumcision in regard to his being the father of all those who are believing in a state of uncircumcision, for them also to be accounted that righteousness. Paul's making an analogy here. And father of circumcision to those not from circumcision only, but to those who walk in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had in uncircumcision. 
The promises to Abraham and his seed were repeated several times before any mention of circumcision was made in Genesis chapters 12 through 16. The circumcision later given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 was for a sign of the faith which he had in the promises. Circumcision was not the faith itself. Circumcision was later a part of the Levitical law, but the Levitical law was not the faith itself. Yahweh God foresaw that Israel would depart from the law, and therefore, as Peter explained, the need for a Messiah was foreknown at the foundation of the world. From Genesis chapter 17, from verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man, every man-child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. As Paul said, this circumcision was a sign of the covenant, but the promises had come first, apart from any ritual. The scope of the statement, all those who are believing in Romans 4.11, is limited to those whom Abraham is a father of. Since the faith which Abraham had in the first place was that his seed would become a great multitude and many nations, and that those nations would inherit the earth. Among Abraham's seed were Judeans who kept the law and the circumcision. Not all of them, but there were plenty of Israelite Judeans. And the dispersed of Israel who did not keep those things, and they were already many nations. This has been the context of Paul's epistle since the first chapter, and it does not change. A Kenyan cannot say, oh, I believe, and imagine Abraham to be his forefather. Neither can anybody else who is not of the seed of Abraham. Christ told the Judeans who opposed him that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. John 10.27 Elsewhere, even though they claimed to be the seed of Abraham, John 8.33, he told them that if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. John 8.37 Abraham believed God. That was the works of Abraham. That's all Abraham did to be accounted righteous. He believed God. But those in Judea rejected Christ because they were not true children of Abraham. Paul explains the reasons for this in Romans chapter 9, that not all of those in Israel are of Israel, and that indeed many of them were Edomites. Paul's explanation agrees with the words of Christ concerning his enemies in John chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 11 and elsewhere. Christ told those enemies in the same place in John 
that God was not their father. Once again, we see that the gospel message was to divide the wheat from the tares. From Luke chapter 19, from verse 9, speaking about Zacchaeus, the man who climbed up into the tree to see Christ passing. And Jesus said to him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Climbing up into the tree to see Christ, that didn't make him a son of Abraham. He was a son of Abraham. That's why he climbed up into the tree to see Christ. Being saved, that didn't make him a son of Abraham. He was, a son, he was saved because he was the son of Abraham. For the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. By that which was lost, Christ was making a reference to the true genetic children of Israel as opposed to those who were claiming to be Israel sitting in the temple. Paul calls them Satan in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Satan they were sitting in the temple claiming to be Israel by a display of the law and the circumcision. While there was a remnant of true Israel among the Judeans, most of Israel was lost both before and during the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of Israel and Judah, many centuries before the time of Christ. Most of Israel, of the remnant in Judea, was lost because they were led out of the way by the Edomite bastards sitting in the temple in Jerusalem. The Romans, who Paul writes to, they were a one branch of those who were lost in ancient times. From Jeremiah chapter 50, from verse 4, In those days and in that time, saith Yahweh, the children of Israel shall come. They and the children of Judah together, going and weeping, they shall go and seek Yahweh their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward. That is a tough one. That is a tongue twister. <laughs> with their faces thitherward. In other words, facing this way. Saying, come and let us join ourselves to Yahweh in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. Romans 4.13 Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir of society, but through righteousness of faith. The Universalists love to twist this passage as well, but they refuse to acknowledge, as Paul does here, that the promise is to Abraham or to his offspring first. And then, among the offspring of Abraham, the promise 
is to those of the faith of Abraham and not to those who would cling to the law or claim that the keeping of the law alone makes one righteous. The promise to Abraham's descendants is not to the law. The promise to Abraham's descendants is to faith. But <laughs> the subjects of the promise don't change. Paul explained this in Hebrews chapter 7, from verse 19. The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God. And yes, that's the second time it was cited in this presentation. Verse 14. For if they from the law are heirs, the faith has been voided and the promise annulled, because... Those people keeping the law in Israel weren't Israel. Likewise, Paul wrote to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Now I say this, a covenant validated beforehand by Yahweh, the law which arrived after 430 years, meaning 430 years after the call of Abraham, the law was given on Mount Sinai. The law which arrived after 430 years does not invalidate by which the promise is left idle. For if the law, for if from law, the inheritance is no longer from promise, but to Abraham, through a promise, Yahweh has given it freely. The relationship to, of Yahweh to the children of Israel as a nation and the giving of the law to Israel did not supplant the promise to Abraham. But rather, those things augmented the promise to Abraham. In Christ, the promise to Abraham will be fulfilled with certainty because if Israel sought righteousness through the law, then since all men sin, all Israel would fail, as we have seen in this presentation tonight from Hosea and from Jeremiah. All Israel already failed, and Israel was dead to Yahweh because they were under the penalty of adultery. So if it were up to Israel keeping the law to be saved, forget it. We already failed. We failed 3,000 years ago, 20, I'm, I'm sorry, 2,500 years ago, 2,800 years ago. <clears throat> so don't imagine that we could get justification by the law today. We certainly can't. Even though if we were able to keep the law, it would, of course, be to our benefit. And we should, as Christians, indeed strive to keep the law, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 3. But we're not going to be justified before God by it. Therefore, Paul, 
also told the Galatians, Galatians 3.24, so the law has been our tutor for Christ in order that from faith we would be deemed righteous. Romans 4.15, for the law results in wrath, so where there is no law, neither is there transgression. And we saw Paul explain in Romans chapter 3 that, I'm, t- I'm sorry, we will see Paul explain in Romans chapter 5 that until the law, sin was in the society. But sin was not accounted, there not being law. As we asserted earlier in these presentations, the moral laws of God transcend the Levitical law or the laws of Moses. Man, the laws of Moses only incorporate the moral laws of God. Man was created by God to do good and not to do evil. From Ephesians chapter 2, from verse 10, for his work we are, having been established among the number of Christ Yahshua for good works, which Yahweh before prepared in order that we would walk in them. Verse 16 of Romans chapter 4. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all the offspring. The promise isn't for anybody else. It's certain to all the offspring, not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. Just as it is written, that a father of many nations, I have made you, literally that word is established, before Yahweh whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing. And these last two phrases are of the utmost importance. From Genesis chapter 17. Verse 5, we'll read this again. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations I have made thee. Paul just quoted that, Romans 4.17. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed, thy offspring, after thee in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Paul's citation of Genesis 17, 5 and verse 17 of Romans 4 defines what he meant by Abraham's offspring in verse 16 of Romans 4 where Paul says that the promise is certain to all the offspring, or seed, by quoting Genesis 17.5, Paul clarifies for us that Abraham's offspring are those nations which came from Abraham's loins. It's not some substitute church. It's not some magical body of believers from every nation under the sun. Paul 
says explicitly here that Abraham's offspring are those nations that came from his loins. The denominational sects imagine that in Christ, many nations somehow could become Abraham's seed, which is exactly contrary to the promises of God, and which is also exactly contrary to the teachings of the, of, of the apostles. Paul illustrates the fact that Abraham trusted Yahweh who raises the dead to life. 2,000 years before Christ arose from the dead, Yahweh performed that same miracle on behalf of the womb of Sarah, which Paul is about to explain in verse 19 of this chapter, where Paul tells us <clears throat> that Yahweh calls things not existing as existing. We can ascertain that the nations which were of Abraham's seed did not exist when the promise was made to Abraham. That's what Paul is talking about. But that they indeed must have come into existence later. We must look. We have an obligation to look at the scripture and at the historical record and determine which nations they were because none of them existed in Abraham's time. And because the children of Israel certainly can be traced from their initial departures from Palestine up until modern times. None of them were Jews. And Christ told the Jews that they were not his sheep in the first place. Yet those Israelites in Judea who did hear his voice lost their identity as Judeans when they turned to Christ. So they were never thereafter known as Jews. This is the primary endeavor of what we commonly refer to as Christian identity. We endeavor to use the archaeological data and the historical records which we have correlate them with scripture and deduce the identity of those nations which came from Abraham's seed. Those are the nations in which Abraham believed. Those are the nations of the Christian promise. And those are the nations which are the proper and exclusive heirs of the gospel of Christ since if one is not from one of those nations, one is simply not a part of what Abraham believed. Paul himself was the first teacher of this doctrine. We profess to follow him. When the promise to Abraham was made, there were no Trojans, and therefore neither were there yet any Romans or any Illyrians. The Trojans were part of those who departed from Egypt under, apart from Moses. And the Romans and the Illyrians descended in turn from them. We shall discuss this further when we present Romans chapter 11.
Therefore, we should not be surprised that Paul preached both to the Illyrians and to the Romans. When the promise to Abraham was made, there were no Danan Greeks. There were no Macedonian Greeks. There were no Dorian Greeks. According to the records of the Greeks themselves, the Danan Greeks came from Egypt also and settled in the Peloponnesus. According to the archaeologists, that's when Mycenaean civilization was destroyed. Several centuries thereafter, the Dorian Greeks came by sea, and they conquered for themselves those parts which the Danans had held. The Macedonian Greeks later also descended from these, from the Greeks of the Peloponnesus. Therefore, we should not be surprised to see that Paul preached the gospel to these Greeks. And Paul even told the Dorian Greeks of Corinth that their ancestors had been in the Exodus with Moses, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. However, when Paul encountered the Lycaonians in Acts chapter 14, or the Ionian Greeks in Acts chapter 17. Paul did not speak to them as Israelites. He didn't preach to them of Jesus. He didn't tell them about redemption. Because they were not descended from Israelites. Rather, the Lycaonians and the Ionians descended from others of the Adamic Genesis 10 tribe. And Paul spoke to them accordingly. When the promise to Abraham was made, there were no Sake, as the Persians called the Scythians. The Sake are the tribes properly called Scythians. Modern archaeologists abuse the term Scythian. There were no Galatahi. There were no Chimerians. Chimerians are only Sake by their Assyrian name. They're the same people. From these came the Germanic tribes of Asia and Europe, as well as related tribes who remained in the Near East, such as the Parthians. Yet it should be no surprise that Paul preached to the Galatians and mentioned the Scythians in his epistle to the Colossians. All of these were descended of those Israelites taken captive by the Assyrians, 800 years before Christ. That's where Galatahi, Chimerian, Sake, and Parthians come from. Paul never made it west of Italy in his journeys. However, when the promise to Abraham was made, there were no Spaniards outside of the people of Tarshish. Tarshish was in Spain. They were Jepethites like the Ionians of Athens. And we see from the time of Solomon that the children of Israel were regularly traveling to Tarshish. These so-called Phoenicians, they were the progenitors of the British, the Irish, and the Iberians, which Iberia comes from the, the Israelite word for Eber. And the Greek classical writers avow that the tin trade to those same islands belonged to them.
to the Phoenicians for a thousand years before the first century B.C., as they estimated it. There are two ways to look at Britain. You can look at Britain like this. Well, these Phoenicians came and stole all of tin and mined it for centuries, 10, 11 centuries, and, and, and disappeared, and, and the British savages were left behind. The British savages, they watched the Phoenicians take all their tin, but there was never any record of any battles or wars or never any archaeological evidence of any wars of British savages against Phoenicians. Or we could look at it like this. The Phoenicians sailed to Britain, established colonies in an unsettled land, and became the British. That's the truth. Israelite Phoenicians settled those islands and many other places in the Mediterranean, beginning nearly 1,400 years before Christ. For example, the word Sardinia. Where does that word come from? The island Sardinia. It comes from an ancient word, Chardana. Chardana was the name of a group of the ancient sea peoples. It can be shown that in Hebrew, the term Shardana means remnant of Dan or remainder of Dan, a colony of Dan. The prophetess Deborah asked maybe about 1400 B.C., 1450 B.C., why does Dan remain in ships? Imagine that. There were other people in Europe for many centuries before the migrations of the tribes of Israel. There are over 2,000 two years of Jephthah presence in Europe, the Ionians, the Rhodians, the Cartesians, the Thracians, and related tribes. There are over 2,000 years of Japhetite presence in Europe before the Greeks began making their own written records about 700 BC. However, the Christian nations of Europe are indeed the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. It is not a coincidence that that's where the apostles went. It is not a coincidence that all those nations adopted Christianity once it finally reached where they were. In some cases, that took over a thousand years. Paul continues his description of the faith in Abraham, of, in his description of the faith of Abraham in Romans 4.18, who contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which 
he would become a father of many nations. According to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. Here once again, Paul quotes the promise to Abraham, this, this time from Genesis chapter 15, where it says, And behold, the word of Yahweh came, to, came unto him, saying, This, Eleazar, shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. In the New Testament here in Romans 4.18, Thus your offspring will be, or thus your seed will be. And he believed in Yahweh, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Verse 19, Romans 4. And he, not being weak in the faith, nor having considered his own body, by this time being dead, being about a hundred years old, and the deadness of the womb of Sarah, but at the promise of Yahweh he did not doubt in disbelief, Rather, he was strengthened in faith, giving honor to Yahweh, and having full satisfaction. This is, this is important, because Abraham believed Yahweh's promise that his seed would become many nations. That's the faith of Abraham. And having full satisfaction that what he had promised, he is also capable of doing. For that reason also, it was accounted to him for righteousness. In verse 18 of this chapter, Paul quoted Genesis 15:5, where Abraham was told that many nations would come from his own bowels, and it contrary to expectation, because he and his wife were so far advanced in their years, he was assured that thus your offspring will be. Then here in verse 22, Paul again quotes Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believed the promise of God was that his offspring from out of his own bowels would become many nations, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. So-called replacement theology or dispensationalism or any belief that anyone other than Abraham's physical genetic children could possibly be the heirs of the covenants of God are therefore blasphemy because they are a direct contradiction to the word of God. Universalists are blasphemers of God. If we seek the righteousness of faith which Abraham was accounted we too had better believe that his seed became many nations and that those nations are the exclusive heirs of the covenants as they were promised. Otherwise, we are contradicting the faith of Abraham. We also see here that the faith of Abraham is in substance. For Abraham believed 
the material value of the promise. The faith of Abraham is therefore not in degree only, as the denominational sects teach. You have to have faith as much as Abraham had faith. You have to have faith like Abraham had. No, you have to have faith that's the same faith as Abraham's, meaning that your faith, the substance of it, you have to believe as Abraham believed. That's what Paul means by the faith of Abraham. It's the substance. It's not the degree. The degree is meaningless apart from the substance. Furthermore, if you are not of one of those nations which descended from Abraham, then you cannot be an heir to these promises because you are not a result of the promises. You are not one of those people of the seed where Yahweh said that he would make these promises to Abraham, to, his, to him and to his seed after him. If you aren't one of those seed because you are not a result of the promises which Abraham believed, then Abraham did not believe in you. So you cannot be of the faith of Abraham. If you are not part of what Abraham believed, you cannot inherit anything along with Abraham, and you have no part with Christ. These promises were destined for Israel, but they were not destined for you unless you are a product of what Abraham believed. Real simple. You're one of the children, or you have no part with Christ. Moreover, Romans 4.23, Moreover, it was not written regarding him only, that it was accounted to him, but also regarding us to whom it is destined to be accounted. To those who believe in he who raised Yahshua Price, Yahshua our Prince from death, who was handed over for reason of our transgressions and was raised for reason of our acquittal. Paul said to us to whom it was destined to be accounted. That means Paul, both Paul and the Romans were destined to be the heirs of the promises which God made to Abraham. That cannot be, unless the Romans were of the children of Israel as well as the Judeans. And that is exactly what Paul has been saying ever since Romans chapter 1. The only people destined to be the recipients of the promises of God to Abraham are the children of Israel, and only Israel was destined for the justification whereby Abraham was also justified. Those people who rejected Christ, rejected Christ because ye are not my sheep. 
the gospel separates the wheat from the tares. The people who accepted Christ are those who believe in he who raised Yahshua, our prince, from death. The Jews said they believed God. They didn't believe God because God prophesied of Christ. Christ was the prophesied Messiah. If the Jews had believed God, they would have believed Christ. The gospel separated the wheat from the tares. That's what Paul is saying here in verses 23 and 24. From Isaiah chapter 43. Verse 25. I, even I, am he that blots out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Put me in, rem in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Put me in remembrance. Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God, our Redeemer, that justifies us. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans 4, 23 and 24. From Isaiah chapter 45, from verse 17. But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed or confounded, world without end. For thus saith Yahweh that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. It's right there in the Bible for everybody to see. He did not speak in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said, not under the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together. Ye that are escaped of the nations, those Israelites that were taken away into Persia, into Assyria, into the cities of the Medes, and they escaped those nations by going to Europe. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh, and there is no God beside me. A just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. That's an eponym for the children of Israel, who were spread to the ends of the earth in the many other prophecies. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. 
that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Yet, the justification of Israel and the fact that all Israel shall indeed be saved does not preclude the first promise of eternal life which was made to the entire Adamic race, which is found in Genesis 3.22. That shall be the focal point of our next presentation in this series. When we discuss Romans chapter 5, Yahweh willing, next Friday. A false prophet and a pretend Christian identity pastor named Joseph November, recently announced to Don Brown in an email that Fink will burn in hell for teaching that whites are saved automatically. However, we shall indeed see the truth of that assertion next week in the discussion of Romans chapter 5, because only bastards burn in hell. For Paul himself said, for as in Adam... All die, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. Things going to burn in hell for teaching the same thing Paul of Tarsus taught. That is the nature of our adversaries the falsely accusing Jews, the accusers of our brethren. That's their nature. We'll see the truth of this next Friday. Romans chapter 5. Thank you for listening. And praise Yahweh. I'll be here tomorrow night with another explanation of 2C line. Tomorrow night's going to be a little different. Tomorrow night, I'm really going to primarily address all of the universalist charlatans claiming to be Christian identity. Praise Yahweh.